Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, this is Emma, production and experience director at the Webby Awards. You might remember me from the old ads, but I'm back. Are you as impressed by the work of the Webby winners as we are? The work honored at the Webby Awards is changing the future of the internet, and you can have access to all the deets behind it. Sign up to the Webby Gallery and Index to uncover insights, inspiration, and trends for your work or just for fun. You'll get the ability to discover innovative projects from around the world that are awesome online, a database of credits to check out who made all that groundbreaking digital work, Trends and insights not available outside of our database, including major categories like fashion, sports, and social, and the advanced power of search. So if you're ahead of us and want to find something we didn't mention, you can do that too. Make sure you're in the know and sign up for free at the top of our page at webbyawards.com. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Conversation, the soul of education. Work hard, but play harder. Free education for anyone, anywhere. Genius is now more accessible. Hey there, and welcome back to the Webby Podcast. Today I'm bringing you two great conversations from Overwrite, How We Learn, a virtual event we held in November. First, our executive director, Claire Graves, had a really fruitful discussion with Wendy Kopp, the CEO and co-founder of Teach for All. They talked about how Wendy and the Teach for All network have been navigating remote education during the pandemic. Afterwards, I talked to Masterclass CEO and co-founder, David Roger, about how the company has been using technology to help adults in the U.S. upskill during the pandemic and what that might mean for the future of how we learn. Then stay tuned. We have a special bonus conversation with Josie Jeffries, Design Director at Slack. Hi, welcome. I'm Claire Graves, Executive Director of the Webby Awards, coming to you from our New York office. And I want to say welcome and thank you so much for joining us. This year marks the 25th Annual Webby Awards, a huge, huge year for us. And we're planning a celebration in a year of uncertainty all around the world. This year also sees rapid change in so many different areas as industries turn to technology and digital solutions to help them respond to this crisis. At the Webby Awards, we are fascinated by the way the world adapts and changes with the use of technology. So we've spent the last few months researching, documenting and studying the impact of the pandemic on society and the internet. And with our partners at Slack, YouGov and WP Engine, we've created a series called Overwrite Tomorrow, which focuses on how the global pandemic created an indispensable internet and ignited the urgency to build a better future. As part of the program, we conducted a YouGov survey of over 3,000 people all over the United States. And I thought it would be interesting to share a couple of the results that really stood out to us. 
Only 16% of respondents want the world to go back to the way it was before the pandemic. 56% of respondents agree that they've noticed flaws in society that they wouldn't have noticed without daily, without daily life dr drastically changing. And when asked specifically about education and schooling, only 20% of parents would choose for schooling to go back to the way it was pre-pandemic. And 60% would choose for some or all of things to change permanently. We think that people are ready for a better future. And to that end, today we're thrilled to discuss the impact of the pandemic on education and how we learn. And we'll be talking to two incredible leaders in this space. I'm going to talk to the CEO and co-founder of Teach For All first, Wendy Kopp. And then I'm gonna hand over to our CEO, David Michelle Davies, who will talk with the founder and CEO of uh, Masterclass, David Rogers. So to that end, I am so excited to welcome Wendy Kopp. To ensure all children have the opportunity to fulfill their potential. Wendy founded Teach for America in 1989 to marshal the energy of her generation against educational inequality in the United States. Today, more than 6,000 Teach for America core members are in the midst of a two-year teaching commitment in 50 urban and rural regions. And Teach for America has proven to be an unparalleled source of long-term leadership for expanding opportunity for children. After leading Teach for America's growth and development for 24 years, in 2013, Wendy transitioned out of the role of CEO. Wendy led the development for Teach for All to be responsive to the initiative of inspiring social entrepreneurs all around the world who are determined to adapt this approach in their own countries. Currently, the Teach for All network is comprised of partner organisations in 56 countries on six continents, including its founding partners, Teach for America and the UK's Teach First. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. For very important reasons, education is one of the most focused on challenges of this pandemic. And the Webby Awards team has over a dozen children in New York and all over the country dealing with different schooling at the moment. So the challenges are something we speak about very often in this office. But we were really, really excited to talk to you because you have a global perspective on how different countries and teachers are responding to the pandemic from all over the corners of the world. And I thought I would start from the start with you and ask you to tell us a little bit about Teach for All uh, and why you started Teach for America and then Teach for All. Absolutely. Um, well, I started Teach for America 30 years ago when I was a college student and felt that our generation was just searching for a way to make a real difference in the world and would jump at the chance to channel their energy into teaching in urban and rural areas across our country. Um, and I had my head down fully focused on addressing the massive inequities that persist in, in our own country. I wasn't thinking about the rest of the world at all, but there was something in the water about maybe 15 years ago. And within one year, I had met people in 13 countries from India to China, to Chile, to Lebanon, to the next place who were just determined 
that something similar needed to happen in their countries. Um, and I think what brings us all together and what is now, as, as you just mentioned, a network of independent organizations in every region of the world um, is a commitment to addressing the fact that the circumstances of kids' birth predict their outcomes and that that is a very complex problem that needs a lot of leadership. It needs leadership in classrooms and at the school level and at the school system level and in policy and even across sectors if we're actually going to address it. So these organizations are all working to, to cultivate that collective leadership initially by investing in, in these folks in classrooms as teachers and, and then supporting them as they exert leadership at every level of the system and across sectors. So how did you, how did you build it out? Where did you start first? What countries did you start first? Well, actually, so it, it isn't even about us starting, right? Like we're supporting local social entrepreneurs in actually now we've had two recent launches. So 58 countries and growing. We had seven launches in the first year and we had, you know, 13 partners by the second year and, and each year since. Even in this year, we've seen five new launches, four of which are on the continent of Africa, which is so exciting. Um, but so we come behind social entrepreneurs, again, in, in all these different countries who have a vision for adapting this approach and, and building movements in their countries to address educational inequity and help ensure that all kids have the chance to fulfill their potential. So I know that you just hosted your Teach for All Global conference last week, virtually, of course. Um, what are some of the lessons that you took away from the con conference for the educators? We had, first of all, we had 2,300 people from 113 you know, countries, and we were just reflecting on what we were able to do virtually that we could never have done in person. We used to come together each year, we'd have 500 people come to different countries, but we had simultaneous translations into multiple languages. There was such connectivity and so much learning through more than 100 sessions. Um, I came away from that space both really concerned on the one hand, I mean, kind of reinforced the deep concerns I think many of us have, and, and also feeling, honestly, that this is a moment that we must seize to jump into new possibilities. I mean, the concerns coming from the fact that, as we know, as you said, I mean, this situation has really not only revealed the inequities that we've been addressing to the, to the world, but it's also exacerbating them massively. And so, for many students around the world right now, um, you know, this pandemic has has real potential to be truly like life limiting. And so there are there are huge risks and there are also huge pressures back to the status quo. It was so interesting to hear those stats you shared earlier about how much people don't want to return to the status quo, but nonetheless, that's probably the path of least resistance. And so we're really thinking about, you know, what can we just let go that we used to embrace as as normal and and how can we just rethink you know what we're working towards what we're aspiring for in communities and as countries and as a global society and therefore what we need to be working towards in education and how do we come together uh, you know in a much more diverse coalition of of people from across many sectors to work together towards those aspirations. So it does just feel, I came away thinking there are so many possibilities and feeling such a sense of responsibility to make sure that we maximize this moment to take advantage of those possibilities. 
I think that is one of the things that has really stood out to us over the last few months is that actually the way that people are starting to use technology is making events and participation in community much more accessible. And, you know, you, you would usually have 500 people at the conference and you've had so many more at, at last week's conference. Mm -hmm. I imagine that accessibility is one of the things that you spoke about a lot during the conference as well and allowing the children to be as able to access. You know, we had an 11 year old student who is a student in a Teach for Nigeria classroom interviewing Malala. You know, this does not happen when you have to have an in-person conference, right? We couldn't have gotten this, either of them probably to wherever we were going to be. So there are so many possibilities and we've seen that not just at the conference, but you know, I think about, we now have 45 communities of practice among teachers and alumni educators from all over the world, from different countries, sharing solutions on different topics. So we have, more than a thousand teachers in teaching without internet WhatsApp groups in four different languages, just thinking with each other and spreading solutions about how do we reach our kids in contexts where we don't have internet access. We have a whole community of education policymakers, people who've taught through these organizations and now are in, they're working in their ministries of education and are thinking together across borders, how do we ensure the safety of adults while also prioritizing the welfare of kids? And we're making different decisions because we're learning from each other across borders. So that is something, I and mean, we were doing that before we kind of built our network on Zoom, but the demand for cross-border learning and the availability you know, to engage in it has just, the time to engage in it has gone so far up. So we never wanna let that go. Yeah, it's, fa it's fascinating. You spoke a little bit about uh, economic and social inequalities. Uh, and the impact of COVID-19, which of course has exacerbated a lot of those inequalities and disadvantages for lots of communities. Um, what are some of the challenges your teachers have faced while helping students this year? They're so significant as you can imagine. I mean, I think the kids in the most marginalized contexts are, are least likely to have safe spaces, you know, to have access even to adequate nutrition or in some contexts, clean water. Um, many of them have been sent to work. You know, their parents lost jobs and, and now they need to help support their families. So there are just, first of all, before we even get to the questions of keeping kids learning, there are so many questions about kids' welfare. And um, at the same time, I mean, think about the all the predictions about early marriages. I mean, just stunning levels of predictions about how many early marriages we'll now have because of this situation that we wouldn't have had before. So, so many issues. And then to keep kids learning, you know, 60% of the kids in Africa don't have any access to, to technology. 40% um, of the people in the world don't. So, you know, my kids are learning on Zoom and everything's cool, but for most kids in the world, it's just not the case. And so many of our teachers are having to innovate in really big ways to be able to reach their kids, ensure their social emotional learning and ensure their, their academic learning progress as well. So tell us a little bit about that. How are educators reaching children without connectivity? 
I have never been so inspired by the, the teachers in different parts of the world, I have to say. I just heard from a teacher named Emmanuel in Uganda who is in a community. He was teaching 120 kids in a community where not one family has a phone and there's no electricity. And so when school shut down, he decided to stay in this community and he reached out to the community leaders and they made an announcement on the community radio saying any parent, any family who will send their kids to his home to pick up learning packs, they didn't even have, they don't have printers. So he, he figured out how to access workbooks and he created individualized materials for these kids. And if they came and picked them up and either brought them back every day or he would go sit under trees, as he said, next to their homes and give them personalized feedback. And this teacher literally said, here's, here are the, here's the progress we've made in this era and posted, we've made progress in, in phonics, you know, understanding. We've made progress in like keeping kids' aspirations alive. Their handwriting has gotten better. Like he is literally keeping a community's kids learning with without any technology. But then we've also seen, so families that have access to even one phone. So there's a teacher named um, Rabia Shadri in, in Pakistan who was teaching 150 girls, fourth and fifth grade girls. And um, the kids don't have internet exactly, but they can have access to one phone with data. Most of her kids have access to that. So she created a WhatsApp school where she now each day sends videos she's been saying like literally the kids are learning more than they were before. She said, we'll never lose the WhatsApp school because it's enabled a different level of differentiation. The kids can watch the videos multiple times. They can ask her questions. She said, it's so hard with 150 kids, you know, 50 kids in a class, but now we've, we've built culture on WhatsApp. Um, there's a different level of parent engagement. So we're definitely seeing new innovations that even once we do come back, even in low tech environments, we'll want to continue. So interesting how people use technology in different ways to, to keep working and keep reaching their students, isn't it? What, what, is there countries that you see that are really ahead of the game using technology to facilitate learning? You know, I would say, I guess what we've seen is that what's important is to use the technology that is actually accessible and in use in a, in a given place. So if people have access to phones and easy access to Messenger or WhatsApp, then it makes a lot of sense to use that. If they have a higher bandwidth you know, possibilities, then great, you can use Zoom and you can use you know, the next thing. I think that what I've seen throughout is that the actual, the key to using technology well in whatever bandwidth environment you're in is the people in the puzzle. I mean, it is always about the teachers. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, we have a student leadership advisory council of students from like 20 countries. And one of them is from Denmark where, you know, everyone, kids have access to laptops and connectivity. And she said, you know, a quarter of the kids show up every day and engage and a quarter of them never have appeared. And in the middle, it's very sporadic. And she said, what we've seen in this era is that some teachers are there to teach content and some teachers are there to teach kids. And unless you have a teacher who has the relationships with the kids to pull them in, to build a sense of community, to enable them to actually connect with each other rather than 
you know, she said, you know, the motivation is so challenging. And that was the resounding message from these students was, you know, it's all about the teachers and whether, you know, the extent to which they have relationships with the kids and, um, and, and the wherewithal to build community among them. There's also, we've been reading a few studies that show that moving to remote learning has been beneficial for some students. Should it be an option that kids continue that going forward as an opt-in? As an opt um, you know, I'm, I feel very torn about this question because, I mean, it's honestly been probably a good thing for at least one of my four kids and maybe more than one. Um, but I worry so much about whether we're ready to move to a remote or even partial remote situation in a way that's equitable. You know, when I think about what my kids have access to in terms of like the space, the connectivity, the devices, and, and you know, even the mental health care and, and, you know, many things that many families wouldn't have access to and that our schools right now serve as a way to ensure kids do have safe spaces, that they do have their different needs attended to, um, irrespective of the resources and, and all that a family might have access to. So I think, I guess I, I think there's a lot more to also learn about what are the actual impacts on kids of, of learning remotely. You know, I, I think there's just a lot to consider and a lot to learn before we jump to that. Have we learned anything yet about the impact of learning remotely from on kids? I don't know. I'm not the most steeped in that. And I'm sure that there are people who, who really are just deeply steeped in it. I will say, I think we've learned a lot about the power of technology as a learning tool. You know, so much of the discussion before six months ago was around, like, we've learned that technology is a good teacher tool, but we're not so sure that it's good for student-facing engagements. And I actually think that this situation just got us all over our inertia and there's been, I mean, more experimentation around this than in, in the many years prior. Um, and I, I know many, many people who would say as Rabia did, we will never go back because here's the thing, like we've, many of us have been working to change the role of a teacher, you know, to make learning student-centered so that the teacher becomes a facilitator of learning rather than the kind of sage on the stage who's like, you know, the one to tell, you know, do the direct instruction thing. And what we've seen is that this era has, it's, it's really flipped the role of the teacher it necessarily. You know, you don't have as much time with your kids. If you, even if you have them in a Zoom class, you've got to send them the work and then spend your time actually connecting with the kids and making sure that they understand it. So it's, it's, I think it's had a very positive effect, you know, where kids have had connectivity and devices and the teachers have had the kind of professional development that's necessary. I think we've seen the possible positive effects. Um, and so the question, I mean, honestly, the thing I'm most obsessing about, you know, alongside many others is how can we leverage technology in a way that it turns out to be a force for greater equity and not greater inequity. Mm -hmm. I think we run a huge risk right now in, in that some kids probably would be much better off in, you know, with much more technology and we'll have access to the devices, the connectivity, the teachers with the skills. And, 
you know, it's just so crucial that we keep in mind the, the charge of equity. How do we ensure that all of our kids, because that's important to our entire collective welfare um, and to the welfare of the most marginalized kids, of course, as well. It, it's just, it's so crucial. And, and I think there are many implications of that for where we put our investments going forward. My mother-in-law is a teacher. Uh, she's a teacher in Oklahoma. And I was, we were there for the first part of the pandemic from April through to June. Uh, and so I was there as she was remotely teaching her uh, third graders. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that she really missed, I mean, she definitely missed being in the classroom with her kids, but one of the things she felt was missing was the emotional support that she gave her kids who are complete, a completely diverse group of children. Um, and so I was wondering if, if you have information or you know about how teachers are, hel are helping kids with emotional support during this time as well. I, I think that has been such a very significant focus and, and point of discussion and action across our whole network. Um, our teachers realize the same thing for sure. And we've had many forums and workshops and sessions about how in this era we can meet the emotional and mental health needs of our students. Um, you know, teachers have set up whole classes, in some cases with both parents and students actually, taking folks through a curriculum that helps them process what they're experiencing um, and access kind of tools to help them work through the anxiety and whatnot. Others have set up phone systems where they're constantly calling each other. Students themselves we've seen initiate, you know, whole programs to ensure that their peers are making it through this era. So I think it, as you say, we need to attend to it and be very intentional about ensuring that part of what we're doing with kids um, right now is supporting them through this. There's so many challenges, isn't there? And one of the amazing, one of, one of the, I think the amazing and important things that have come out of this time is the understanding of how hard it is to be a teacher, the amount of, the amount of different types of work they do teaching children. Uh, and how important their role is in society. Um, we have only a few more minutes because I know you have to run, but I was hoping that we could take some questions from the audience. So I'm going to quickly jump on and see if Angela has any for us. Okay, for Wendy. Has there been one oh wow idea or innovation that your network has encouraged? Uh, from around the world? I don't know that there has been, it would be very hard to point to just one. You know, um, I think, in fact, that there have been so many, you know, and, and they're so contextual. You know, like I think about this group of alumni in the UK, obviously a much higher bandwidth environment than many of them in which we operate, but you know, they mobilized themselves and created essentially a video library of 10,000 lessons so that any student and any teacher 
can access a lesson for any grade level on any of the subjects in their curriculum. And they're very dynamic, very well presented. Um, you know, they last school year, they had 20 million views of these lessons. So like you think about how much teacher time they saved, not to say, okay, you know, because now the teacher can spend their time on the emotional support. They can spend their time on the phone with the parents, on the phone with the kids, making sure that they're, you know, moving through the curriculum, that they're getting the support they need. So that, that's one of, you know, so many. And it's what has led us to focus ourselves on creating the platform to enable learning and sharing across borders. Because we have seen, you know, as, as an example of the power of this, you know, the Teach for Nigeria teachers, when they heard their schools would be shut down, went to the government and said, can we take over the radio station? It's the only way we'll be able to reach our kids. And that went out across our network and a whole bunch of teachers in Latin America saw it in Chile specifically, 50 people came together around a huge effort to, you know, reach kids in the most, you know, dispersed schools, which is now on 214 radio stations in Chile. And people say they'll never lose the radio station. It's the first time they've had this kind of ability to communicate with families and students in very remote areas. And now we have a whole community of practice among teachers who are using radio to communicate with kids and families from all over the world. And, and it's not about, because you can imagine there are ways to do that well and ways to do it less well. And so now they're all just obsessing with each other and sharing strategies about how do we actually go from good to great? How do we reach kids with really engaging instruction and make sure that they're really understanding it? Um, so we've just really seen the power of anything of networks. Um, and, and I never want to lose it. Hopefully we'll see them propagate more and more. I think we could speed up progress in education so much if we could figure out how to network all of our teachers and educational leaders with each other across borders to share solutions. So that's so, so powerful. And also the ability for people to be able to have a global understanding of, of what's going on and learn from each other is just amazing. But one more question for you, and then I'll let you go. What are the most important things you have learned, implemented or embraced over the, over the last eight months that will become part of Teach for All moving forward? Um, one of the most important is certainly, um, I mean, again, we were already on the journey. You know, we were working to build a deeply interconnected global community of people learning from each other across borders. Um, but without, we were also doing a lot of in-person, you know, conferences and a lot of travel. Um, and I think we will come out of this really deeply reflecting on where that in-person presence is important and where we can maybe even accomplish more in a more inclusive way through virtual means. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't think we're ready to say where exactly we'll come out of this, but that's one thing I would say. And, and the, another is, I do think we've, we have, slowed down a bit. And I think it's led to a still greater intentionality about where we put our energy. And I hope we can, I so hope we can hold on to some of that. I completely agree with you. That's something that we've been talking about here at the Webby Awards a lot as well. Well, I want to say thank you so much. I'm so grateful for you, your time this morning and everything that you're doing. Hopefully we can bring you back a year from now and see what other changes you've, in, you've embraced and what else is changing around the world.
Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, thanks again, Wendy. Um, in a moment, I'm going to hand over to our CEO, David Michelle Davies, who's going to talk to David Rogier from Masterclass. Before I do pass the mic, though, I would be, it would be remiss of me if I didn't remind everybody that our early entry deadline is this week. It's coming up on Friday. Uh, at the end of the day on Friday is the last chance for people to take advantage of early entry pricing. Um, if you do want to enter the Webby Awards, you can learn more about all of our categories and all of the submission details at webbyawards.com. On that note, thank you. And over to you, David Michelle. Thank you, Claire. What a great discussion. So, so uh, I know that was, thinking about how kids are learning is on the minds of so many millions of not only Americans, but people around the world. Um, and I think that was, that was super fascinating. Thank you for, thank you for leading that. I'm very excited. Uh, turning, I guess, a bit more towards adult education, though I have a feeling David's going to tell me that there's lots of kids who are learning through Masterclass as well. But um, our next guest is David Roger. He's the founder and CEO of Masterclass, which is a streaming platform where anyone can learn from the best. Uh, growing up, David learned, uh, loved learning, but often struggled in school. And he was determined to reinvent the traditional model and provide lifelong learning opportunities for everyone. That's why he created Masterclass in 2015. Uh, Masterclass has since transformed the life learning, uh, lifelong learning category, providing intimate access to 90 plus of the world's best practitioners with classes on a wide range of subjects. Uh, I can attest to that as a Masterclass subscriber. Uh, Masterclass has grown into one of the fastest and largest online learning platforms in the world. David, uh, welcome. Thank you. It, I am excited to be here. Um, you know, I think, I, can, I think we can, you guys have done such a great job, I think, telling the world what Masterclass is. I'm not going to ask you the, what is Masterclass, and hopefully I explained it. And if people don't know, I think it'll, it'll become clearer as we move on. Um, I want to kind of jump right to March, because from the outside, it kind of seems to me that, in a way, Masterclass was kind of like almost designed for the pandemic, and not that anyone would ever hope or think there was a pandemic coming and design a company around it, but just that, um, you know, suddenly there's all these people who were, you know, out in the world or now at home and didn't have a lot to do and were interested in take using that extra time, maybe that they had in their lives suddenly to learn new things. And there was Masterclass, not 
not like an idea, but a fully formed, incredible platform waiting to teach them. Is that like, is that what happened or what was that like? Yeah, I mean, we did, didn't plan on a pandemic, yeah. right? And uh, that was not in our, you know, pitches at, at any point in time. Um, I think, in fact, in some of our pitches, people wondered if, hey, if the econ, if, if things go, if things do not go well with the stock market, are you guys going to have an impact on demand? You know, is it going to impact your own demand? Um, but what we, but I, I think the hypothesis the hypotheses that let allowed us to excel in the pandemic in March were things that we held true for the past five years. <coughs> Excuse me. And, you know, I, I think what the pandemic did was just put gas on those trends. Um, the idea that, you know, um, it's not just I'm, you know, I want to be able to learn from my screen or to be able to learn from home, but this idea that, you know, I think the lines have blurred between where and how you learn. I think we used to think that there was a time and a place for you to learn. That was in school. And as soon as you come home, all the learning stops. And, you know, we, you know, now we see that you learn, you know, in your living room on your big screen, right? The same that you do on your lap, on your, on your laptop. Um, this idea that, hey, if I'm home and I don't have to go to physical place, I kind of want to learn from the best person in the world. Why do I care that the person I'm going to learn math from is in my zip code? I rather just figure out who the best in the world is. So all of these are trends that I think we believed in beforehand. Um, and it just put fuel on the fire on those trends. Yeah. And I mean, again, I said at the top there that, you know, you have a really diverse set of classes. Um, both my young kids love the Tony Hawk. Uh, oh, awesome. 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 Awesome avid skateboarders and you know I'm, I'm as boring and obvious as any other you know guy who lives in Brooklyn and loves all the cooking stuff but um give me a sense um you just sort of like what are the what what were the most popular classes and has that changed at all with with I would imagine a huge influx of people even more so than before taking them yeah it was it's been really interesting to watch and look at what people want to learn most in the pandemic um and there's some obvious ones so we launched a class with ron fit with ron finley on gardening in your on your balcony in your backyard that has done great right that one it's an amazing class if somebody hasn't taken that class it will it it, it has made me have a brand a brand new hobby um but there's ones that are less that were surprising to us um we have a class from Chris Voss, who's the former lead FBI hostage negotiator. And um, his class has been out for about a year. And we saw a big surge, not in the entire class, in his lessons on tactical empathy. Huh. And we dove into that being like, why is that surging? And we talked to people and they're like, well, I'm home. I got a wife and kids or a husband and kids. I need to figure out how I get more of the big screen time. Um, and so the, it's just been really interesting to see. I think it's become more applied in what we want, but there's also things we have an econ class with Paul Krugman, who, who we've also seen a surge as all the, uns, all, the uns, all the uncertainty in the markets, I think has caused people to also want to learn more about what, you know, understand what's happening. Yeah. What, what do you think, like, what are the qualities that make somebody really good other than being like the Paul Krugman of economics or the Tony Hawk of skateboarding? That's, you know, expertise is playing there, but 
What are the qualities that make somebody really good at teaching remotely? If that's, I don't know if that's the right way of describing it, but. Yeah. I think number one, you have to rethink the form factor. You can't take how and what you taught in a physical classroom or on a conferences and just say, I'm now going to film that. That is a recipe for being for being very hard to follow, to understand, to be engaged with. So I think you have to think of the form factor and change how you do it. I think the 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 folks, the best online folks, I think understand that because you're not um, stuck in a chair, right, or stuck in in the chair inside a room that you can't leave, or it'll be awkward if you walk out, or you're gonna get in trouble to walk out, or you have to raise your hand to you know to be able to walk out. Um, online, there's so many distractions and easy things that you get, you know, you switch to. So you have to be very compelling. And, and, and I think this was one of our big hypotheses that, and you know, that, you know, this is the, a myth that education's on one side and entertainment's on the other. And I never understood that. Why can't education also be entertaining? And in fact, if you think back of the classes you've taken in your life or the times you've learned the most, most of the time, it's actually wrapped around a great story because that allows us to stick in our mental mod, into our brain, into how we think about things, supply other things. So I think that inner, being able to entertain and educate is actually a really one of the most important things in being, in being good at teaching online. So being a good storyteller. Yeah. 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 I mean, I know that the Alice Waters class, for instance, I know she talks a lot of, it's like every, every recipe, there's like a story of her trip to the market and the first time she had it and what it meant to her daughter and like it, it definitely yeah worked. yeah and, and i don't know if you felt this way for me in that class that made it come alive a lot more and i understood why she cared as much right and and, and that's the stuff that you stick with it's not that oh she said i need to add an extra you know ounce of this um i, I think the other part too is um most online classes or a lot of online classes are still live and they're done live. I think there's very few cases that live is actually optimal. Um, there's very few of us and I'm not one of them that is better live, right? The, the power of post-production and editing is very powerful and is a gift. And so I think you have to think if you're going to teach online, you're going to do live, why and how do you take advantage of the live? Otherwise, do not have it live. So the great things for live is if, you know, I want to engage with people in the class, right? I want to be able to ask questions or answer questions. If it's something that's so current and so new that, you know, you are, you know, if I'm analyzing a sports game or doing something like that, that you need whatever is the most new. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, well, tell me, like, how do you guys think about, which classes to do right because i i think you there's about 90 i think is that right yep, yep yep which sounds like a lot but you know if you think about like some other online learning platforms out there like it's actually very that's very very curated especially given the total amount of topics that you cover i mean you could you could see 90 topics on economics if you wanted to or something right so yeah how do you think about you know, what the scope of a class should be. And like, you know, I'm sure you obviously have a lot of data around the audience and what they might be interested yeah. in. Give us like some broad strokes of, of how you think yeah. about become a masterclass. I mean, uh, first of all, we want everything on the platform to be amazing and good. So we do handpick everything, right? We have a whole process of how we pick instructors and the subjects and the fields. Um, and then the things that the class is actually on and we test it. Um, but it, it, you know, and I think 
our underlying belief is that everybody should have a chance to learn from the best. And there's certain things you know you want to learn. There's other things you don't. But if you're exposed to it, you would love it. And, you know, this is another, I think, myth in the education world where, you know, most education treats us as if we are a single dimension. You want to learn how, you know, you want to learn um, about, about micro econ that, that, that is what you study and that's what you go deep in um, grad school. I have an MBA, so it's just in the business world, but I think we're actually multi hyphenate. And I think, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, but I also love fit. I also love fish tanks um, and shoes. Right. And, and so being able to, tap into the multiple parts of our identity to actually think a real or very important thing. So one of the things that we saw in our data and in our insights and in our data is that if you come in for one field, you don't stay in that field. You actually go broad. So I forgot the exact stat and I might be a little off on this, but this is like roughly right in direction. If your first class is Steph Curry, right? The bass, the bass, ball player um it's an amazing class and it'll change your game if you if you play ball um your next class i think you're most likely to take if i remember this right is steve martin i would have not guessed that right um but you start realizing hey sorry why can't somebody who likes to shoot also like steve martin right like but but, but these are these these notions in our head that are that think well no if you come in for for a basketball class all you want to take is more sports classes um so we actually do a lot of work both on a qualitative side and a quantitative side to understand for example you right what are the things that you're going to actually like what are the things that are going to get you in the door and what things are going to get you to actually stay Hmm, amazing so i mean it sounds to me like you got a bunch that steph curry is really good at slightly improving people's basketball games and then then people get a little their head get a little, gets a little big and they think that suddenly they could take a class and become super funny. That has not come up as a hypothesis, but we will now look into that. <laughs> um, Claire earlier was talking to Wendy Kopp about, and they talked a lot about accessibility. Yeah. Uh, people might not actually realize this, but you guys have done a lot of work around making master classes more accessible. Uh, yeah. Can you talk about some of that? Yeah, I mean, um... It goes back to our mission. Um, I was raised in part by my grandparents, and um, then everything was ta- was taken from from them. And uh, they instilled in me that the only thing that someone can't take away from you is your is is your education. And so I vowed when created this, the one to try to make it possible for anybody to learn from the best. And part of that means there's some people that do not have the means to do it. Um, so things that we have done and are doing. Um, this in the in this year we um, are going to give away and are close to it two hundred thousand all access passes um, to people that cannot afford it. Um, we've also worked um, here in California, here in here in the state I'm in, um, with the Department of Corrections to make it so that that if you are in there you have at you can take some of our some of our classes we actually began the first one we are doing is ron finley um so if you um are, are for that you can get, what that was the gardening class correct yeah that's gardening class we also um is free for anybody at right who is at who is in who is at rikers um also has access to that class so really, really, really trying to make it that people who can't afford it don't have the means to um, still have access. Amazing. And how, why do you, 
I mean, why not? But why why did you focus on prisons? Yeah, um, it's a group of people that um, um, right now are struggling immensely um, in the pandemic. Um, they cannot have visitors. Almost all in-person classes have been shut down um, and they can't go out of their cell often. So they're literally trapped in their cell almost almost all the time. And there's lots of people in there that want to learn and should have the, abil the ability to learn. And so that was something that was important, important to us. Um, it was also impor important to, to Ron. Um, we've also worked with schools, again, in schools um, in parts of the world where they cannot afford it. Um, yeah, it's a really core part to why I started this. Tom, I know you believe in general the concept of upskilling and continuing to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, can you talk about that? And, and I have lots of thoughts here. How important you yeah. think that is for people, and and what people should be really how people should be approaching learning throughout their careers and, and, and that kind yeah. of. Yeah. We have this myth, I think, especially in America where like education stops at college. That's crazy. Now that might've worked in the past because if I look at my parents' generation, they learn what they learned in school would last them for most of their career in life. And maybe every year they would take a class in something to you know, increase a little bit, you know, to improve or something. I think the rate of change has increased so much that's no longer the case. The things you learn in school are not gonna last you for your entire career, number one. Number two is the rate of change is actually increasing. So not only is it not gonna last you, it's gonna last you for less and less. So as a result, we have to, you can't just say I'm done learning or I'm done with education. And part of what I wanna be is I want us to be the school for that next part of your, of your life. And I, I break it down into chunks a little bit. I think for the first 10 years of your career, your job is to figure out what greatness is. And what I mean by that is you need to work in a bunch of different places for a bunch of different people and start getting a sense of what does a great CFO look like? What does a great boss look like? Um, what do, you know, how, how do they act? Um, how do they treat you? How do they perform? And understanding what greatness looks like, A, allows you to then decide what you want to go do because you're going to say different profession. Two is you understand what type of people you need to be with and to work with. And then it'll, lastly, it allows you, um, it really sets your bar higher, which allows you to figure out how, where you have to go and who and what, the, when you have to hire somebody or work with somebody, what are they going to look like? So that's, I think, really the first 10 years of your career. But I think after that, the, the, the trick is doing breadth and depth. I think there's certain things like almost every day you could think of, I'm going to spend 15 minutes to go deep in an area I'm already deep in so I get better. And I'm gonna spend that same amount of time every day to go broad into something I don't know about. And all the research and all the work shows that those broad connections or those unintentional connections or those weak ties, whatever you wanna call them, actually help you become great. Yeah, so interesting. What do you, I mean, we were talking um, a little bit earlier also about how do we think the pandemic has changed learning? It's a question I wanna ask you too. And you know, what, what have you seen through all the data you get through Masterclass and how the pandemic is influencing people's attitudes towards learning and, and what, what do you hope we, we keep? Um, yeah. What kind of changes that you've seen that you're, that you're excited about? I mean, look, we are seeing people spend a much more time to learn. 
Um, a lot more time to learn online that I love. I hope that stays. Um, we're seeing people go more broad um, about other things that they want to learn about things they, they did not learn about. I mean, how many people on this you know call or um, have pit, have started a new hobby? I'm gonna ask you. I'm gonna ask you. Have you started any any new any new hobbies? Um, I'd say yes. I mean, I'd say I added to like I I brought in my like cooking world. All right. Moved into things that I hadn't really contemplated before, but still in the general. Still okay. Okay. So I should say you've either I think, and I don't have any stats for this, but this is this is my intuition that people have either added a new hobby or have gone more deep or broad in the current hobbies. Yeah. Right. Um, just because. A bunch of other things have been stopped, right? Or you, or you can't do. Um, I think the other thing is, um, and this is less for us, and this is more in the K-12 space. For the first time in a long time, parents are literally back in the classroom. Parents have been engaged for a long time, but they're they can be in the living room with their kid as they're on Zoom with their school teacher. That's a level of transparency um, that hasn't existed for most people for a long time. And that's gonna breed two different emotions. One is, wow, this is amazing, this is great, I love this. Two, it'll be like, I do not like this. There's a lot of room for me to improve this. And, and I think that is a stimulus for new ideas, for new entrepreneurship. The best way to start entrepreneurship is to have a complaint or an issue or pro an issue that you have that you now want to go solve, right? Um, so I think it's going to be a burst to brand new ideas in the ed tech space. Fascinating. Um, this is from Edgar in Iowa, a question for you. Uh, you obviously have a lot of fascinating classes. What are you still pining for? What's the dream class and who's the teacher? I'm going to give you a pass on the teacher one because you probably can't really say that. But if you want to, great bonus points. Wait, 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 wait so sorry. You're saying, what, sorry, I can't say what? What's, no, I was saying, what's the dream class and the dream teacher? I, I was saying, I'll give you a pass on the teacher because that's probably like something you, but it's bonus points if you don't mind. Yeah, no, I'll say, I'll say it. I'll say it. Um, Michelle and Barack Obama, anything they want to teach, I'm game for that. Um, um, Steve, Steven Spielberg, I'd, I'd really like, I think storytelling would be really great. Um, Elon Musk and entrepreneurship. Also, in anything he wants, you know, about um, who else? Um, those I think are probably my top ones. Yeah. Well, Elon Musk on how to how to make electric cars, so we can all we can all become electric. Cars. Or or on rock or on 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 the rocket ships. I actually think he's underrated how good he is as a marketer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That is incredible. I think he's really brilliant. For sure. Well, David Roger, I really appreciate you joining us. Congratulations on all the success of Masterclass. For all the subscribers out there, uh, also want to thank you. Thanks. Uh, so Thanks so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you. I also want to thank both uh, both of our guests and our other guests in addition to David, uh, CEO of Masterclass, Wendy Kopp, who is from Teach for All and joined us, um, and my colleague and executive director, uh, Claire Graves. Thank you as well. And thanks to Slack and YouGov and WHP Engine, our sponsors, thank them for our, their support of this program. Our next event is coming up on November 10th. We will invite you to join us for Overwrite, How We Stay Healthy. Uh, we'll be speaking with Andy Slavitt, former administrator in the Obama administration, and Naj Austin, founder and CEO of Somewhere Good and Ethel's Club. 
They'll join us to consider what we've learned during 2020 and how it will shape the future of health and well-being. Um, as Claire did, I'll remind you that our early deadline for the Webby Awards is this Friday. If you have stuff you're really excited about that you may, we encourage you to enter it. You can do so at webbyawards.com. Uh, you can also RSVP for our event on November 10th at webbyawards.com as well. Thank you all, and uh, thank you here for joining us. Be well. Thanks so much to Wendy and David for joining us for Overwrite. I hope you enjoyed it and we'll include links to learn more about Masterclass and Teach for All website in the show notes. In addition to the event series, we also released a trend report with the help of sponsors like Slack, YouGov, and WP Engine. In it, we did a deeper dive into how the internet has accelerated change across sectors like education, entertainment, and work. As we all settled into remote work, productivity platforms like Slack became more important than ever to help us literally redesign how we work. So we talked to Josie Jeffries, Design Director at Slack, about what it means to design productivity tools that so many of us rely on and how she's seen design change. Most importantly, we touched on the lessons she's learned about how people have been working in the last eight months. Last year, I believe 1,500 people were at San Francisco at the main event. We had Serena Williams speaking. Like It was really well done. With the digital event, you know, you no longer have a venue. You no longer have a city to, to draw you in or people saying, well, I just want to visit San Francisco. This is worth the price. So at this point, we decided there was no longer even a price for the event. The event would be free. So now you're now competing against all these other Zoom sessions and all these other things that you have to consume on the computer and say, change, you know, change, change directions and focus on our content. So what is that content? How do we make that relevant to you, to what you want to learn? How do we bring it to you in a way that feels really engaging? So Sarah Cooper was one of our keynote speakers. We also had a lot of our, like our CEO, Stuart Butterfield, our CMO hosted Sarah Cooper, and our head of sales also did a really engaging session with some of our customers to help people not only consume content from all the people that they were interviewing, but we also had additional layers of the platform that were designed for networking. So those other aspects of the event that you are missing now that you're completely virtual. Networking, contests, quizzes, downloads. So like the handouts and stuff that you would pick up at the event were all within this one platform. So you're really like thinking through all these different little sort of moments that happen in an event and trying to bring them to the virtual event. Yeah. I, I like thinking about it. You know, there's so many things that are pulling for our attention. There are so many things that feel pressing right now. So what kind of reason are we giving people to tune into us, to choose us, to spend their time with us? And you have to think of like, what, well, what's in it for them? What is it? Why do I care? Are really compelling questions I always ask, whether it's writing for a landing page or writing copy for an event or doing an email campaign. Because if, 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 it, if I don't care about the content I'm consuming or about the experience I'm looking at, I'm not going to give it more than a few seconds. What was like the biggest challenge you ran into? It's kind of all those gray areas. I equate it to, you know, like it's been a while, but like when I planned a wedding, I remember the day of the wedding, I remembered, oh crap, we don't have music for when people enter the building. Like there's just those little moments that you forget to plan for. So video screens for countdowns or 
filler video between, you know, those transition sessions were one of those things I remember at the last minute saying, oh yeah, do we have a video for that? Can we, can we play some of our commercials here? Just finding ways to, to fill in the space and make it feel very intentional and on purpose, which of course went off without a hitch, but I remember there were some last minute hoops. So switching gears a bit, Slack plays a big role in sort of our work life. Do you, as somebody who works there, like, do you get, do you all feel, you know, like you're supposed to be sort of like the experts of how to design and organize work life? To a degree. Yeah. I feel like we're in a really beneficial position because we don't use email at Slack. We only use our product. So it's, it's wonderful because it's on your phone. There are a lot of different administrative things you can do for do not disturb, setting notifications. You know, when I go on vacation, which I think I did do this, I think I went on vacation once this year. It's been quite the year. You know, you just you just turn it off and that's it. And when you come back, everything's there. And, you know, other people have had the opportunity to fill in for you more easily than if you, all of your communication was in an inbox or only in specific mm -hmm. meetings. Everything happens in channels. So every project, every topic, every team has channels where everyone is having these conversations, sharing files, making decisions, approving files or designs or copy. And so it's so nice to come in. And if I've not been mentioned or I've not, there's no kind of flag, I just know everything ran smoothly, which is kind of the dream, especially as a design director, just, wow, everything just right. keeps working. This is fantastic. And have you had to change the way your team works together? Like if you were going into an office before, and especially in design, there's always so much collaboration. You know, I don't know if at Slack, if you are already sort of oriented around like collaborating more virtually than at other places, but I would imagine, you know, suddenly being together would affect the way your design team and your copy team works together. How have you all handled that? We have changed a lot of things and we've also changed very few things. I had the benefit of having a remote designer from the get-go. So one of my designers lives in Vancouver. So I've always had a remote working relationship with her. And I do credit a lot of my abilities and my success to having really had her as a really thoughtful partner through all of it. Apart from my working relationship with her, there was a time that I had with the team called Team Time. When I was in the office, where if I was at my desk, my team knew that I was available for questions, for reviews, to look at their work. And it was more of this like just informal review type of meeting and not being able to be there in person or review work or answer questions. I switched that team time to just a virtual office hour meeting on my calendar with my team knows they can accept it. They can drop by. Some people do come to review work. Some people come with questions. And some of the designers and copywriters just come to hang out a bit to hear what other people are up to. It, it is very informal. And I think that's been really key in regards to like, how do we set up remote culture to have those moments of, mm. of in the office opportunity where it's informal, it's conversational. I, I hired a designer remotely, so I've never met him in person. He's never met me. I also hired a copy manager who started four days before we went completely remote. Oh, wow. So I've also been tested in that regards, like, you know, how good of a manager are you in setting people up for success in helping shape their relationship building and creating opportunities for acknowledgement for success? How do I 
figure out these people and how to motivate them? How do, how do I make sure that they are feeling happy when all I have to go on is, is Zoom <laughs> and a voice and some, some written communications every now and then? And what about like for the production work? You know, I know you guys do a lot of like photography and for the events and so forth. Like, how are you able to do that not being together anymore? I'm so glad you asked about photography. We've had a lot of success there. Before we went remote, we did have an in-office studio. The team was really excited about photography. So three of them took classes on how to do lighting, how to set stuff up. We invested in some props. And we were ready to go. So the majority of the work that you see on our site is a scrappy group of three people from the team who said, we can do this, right? which was really inspiring, but is no longer accessible to us because we are not in the office. And it was, it was like very, like, I think people who have seen the site, I think would sort of recognize that it was always very like, you know, fun and like little miniature props and, and sort of, you know, character driven or like little set sets and stuff like that. Yeah, we had this spectrum for photography where it was accessible to aspirational. Hmm. For people or for products like devices, you wanted it to be accessible. You wanted people to say, like, I could use this or I see myself in this scene. But on the aspirational side, stuff for like customer stories or the enterprise product things that were, um, you know, paid features. You want people to look at those photos that are associated with the copy and that content and go, oh, that's for me, or that's what I would like to be, or mm. that seems worth paying for. So we've been able to continue using that in this remote world. And we've had at this point, three successful remote photo shoots where through Slack, we partner with an editorial photographer, come up with some concepts, do some sketches, send things back and forth, select them. Thanks to online shops, buy the props, send them to the new photographer. And in a day, we can knock out anywhere from like seven to nine photos, GIFs, et cetera, for campaigns or other web pages that we are working on. And are you able to sort of like in real time watch or look at the set being constructed or the, the, the photos being taken and give feedback? Or is it sort of just like a beginning of the day, end of the day type of thing? It is constant. Even the day before, it's like, here's the set list, here's what's going on. And as soon as the photographer is taking the pictures, they're sending them through the Slack channel for the team to react. So, hmm. you know, use the eye emoji to say, I'm looking at this. Use the thumbs up or the green check mark emoji to say, this is good to go. We've had a lot of conversations about, can you tilt the dartboard, you know, like 15 degrees or the hand throwing the darts could be just a little bit more angled or like a flower in one area could be more refined. It's been very collaborative and shameless plug, but on slack.design, we do have a blog post of the latest experience. www.slack.design? Yes, that is our design site. What jobs we have right now, some blog posts, meet the team, that type of thing. It's a trend we see more and more, I think, in not just at Slack, but at you know companies all over, that not only does the company have a blog or some sort of inside place where people can sort of get a sense of what's going on inside, but actually that different departments also will have that too. And, you know, I think even, I think you all at the design team even have like an Instagram account. We sure do. How do you think about what should go there and why, how important is having a space like that to share the way that you work? I think it's increasingly more important 
What I noticed specifically being at Slack versus other tech companies I've worked at or advertising companies is it's been quite common. And I, and I say this with a lot of humility, but people often say, I'm inspired by your site or I'm inspired by your tone and voice. Like we use it all the time over at you know Dropbox or Adobe. And if this has been beneficial for other people, how can we scale that? How can we give back to that community, whether it's design or copy? And a lot of those things, especially being on the web and digital design side of the house, we're like, well, let's build a site. <laughs> let's build a site. Let's have a blog. Let's write things. Let's take pictures of the pictures we took for the blog. The Instagram one was an interesting one that came out of a creative hack week about a year ago. We were thinking of kind of those like low pressure ways where we can contribute a lot of things and, and, and share it out. So more of that like low pressure virality. And truly the Instagram account, which is at Slack Design, we had to go through our paid digital team's Facebook rep to get that account. Why? Someone was sitting on it from 2012. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> You've talked a bit about accessibility, and I would imagine that inclusivity is, goes hand in hand with that. Um, how do you think about expressing that value in the design work you and your team are doing? I mean, I, I, obviously, it's important for people to know or think that Slack and the software is accessible. And how do you communicate that in the work that you're doing? Or how do you think about that? For us, all of our work is prior to someone being in the product. It's more of that top of funnel drive. So the awareness, the consideration, and right up to onboarding is kind of where our team stops focusing. However, that does not mean that anything accessible or anything inclusive is not considered. I would say it's, it might even be considered more. How do we make sure that this is accessible as possible? So tabbing, all of our images have alt text. Like these are all things that, you know, based on the CMSs I uh, alluded to earlier, these are like non-optional forms as you're entering content. You cannot put an image in without putting alt text in. On the inclusive side, we just launched the product in Korean a week or two ago. In addition to launching the product in Korean, that also means launching the entire site in that language as well. So for every language we have, and you can ac access this at the bottom of the site by changing the region, all of the personas in our UI change, both the photos of them and their names. All of our customer logos change. It's just, I think, a, a really well done and very thoughtful way of making sure that we're not just bringing a product to these new regions, but we're bringing all the associated marketing materials, education materials, tips and tricks that'll help our customers and or users be more successful. Is it harder with a brand like Slack that has such a distinct point of view and is unique and is fairly, I would say, expressive to, to translate that into, say, Korean? Like if you're going to say cute things and quippy things and funny things, those things aren't going to necessarily work in a different language. I think we have some additional work to do in regards to how we show up with our brand voice in other regions. However, we do have a really thoughtful team on, of localization experts and production partners who help us uh, nail it as much as possible. 
Um, we had the opportunity to interview Bob Galmarini, um, who's the director of brand design, I think, at Slack for our trend report. And one thing he brought up was that the pandemic had really highlighted the use of Slack Connect. And I know here at the Webbies, we've actually used it a bit more recently where we have people that we work with in partner organizations. We're actually able to bring them into like our Slack, our company Slack by sort of like setting up the specific channel. Is that something you've been able to use more of? And have you seen any other interesting uses of Slack or other software in terms of how people are working together during the pandemic? Yeah, I'm so glad uh, Bob brought up Slack Connect. Bob is actually my manager at Slack, so and we have the same birthday. So a lot of, lot of similarities there with Bob. But for Slack Connect, I, I love the possibilities of it. We definitely use it every day with clients and vendors and contractors. It's really nice instead of, you know, especially in this uh, remote photo shoot example, instead of having someone working in separate files in separate places, emailing one person on the team and then finding this person has to take their kid, you know, on a walk or their dog on a walk or their pick their kid up from school. And then now we have like an hour block of time that's not useful. Slack Connect lets anyone plug right into your Slack instance. Uh, everything is secure. Everything is easy. All the processes are set up. And again, in that photo shoot example, now all of those photos from that photo shoot are in Slack. So that's something that's accessible to anyone on the team or anyone that's invited to that channel. And it makes everything easier on both sides. So for Slack Connect specifically, you know, it, it can be scaled out to other companies, other teams at other companies, and as a way to just really work together better. But I love that there are opportunities for more of the freelancers, consultants, or solo users, where before Slack was a really hard tool to use if you didn't have a team. However, now you can plug into a team. And so it kind of extends that benefit of Slack, which is really nice. You know, for many, the way our lives used to function has changed a lot. We've talked about that a bit. Um, and also a lot of focus on like work-life balance and mental health as people are like at home a lot more than they have been in the past. And a lot of this is about like designing for a good life or designing well for work. What do you think it means to design for a good life? It's so interesting and top of mind to say what does designing for a good life look like? Because that's so personal. Everyone's good life looks different. Everyone gets energy from different places. And it's important to not confuse energy with time. So you, what I mean by that is you can have a 30-minute meeting and you can leave invigorated. You know who's working on what, you know what you're doing, the goal sounds exciting, and you, you're amped, right? Or you can be in a meeting and two minutes in, you're like, oh, no, this, is a, <laughs> this isn't going anywhere. I'm really confused. Is this thing on? And at the end of those 30 minutes, you don't feel that enthusiasm and you feel a bit maybe more drained. And so I think it's really important when you're thinking about designing for work, it's not just like, where are we spending our time, but where are we spending our energy and, or how are we replenishing it? Hmm. So a lot of those instances for my team, we, we talk about stuff a lot. I even tweaked our standard status meeting, which we had on Mondays, very common practice team gets together. What are you working on? Any blockers, any concerns? 
cool, have a great week. We realize all of that could happen in a status channel. Go ahead and put your projects in there, what your focus areas, what are your blockers. And instead, we now focus more on, you know, inform, decide, and discuss. Because those are the things that you do need a meeting for. What's happening? How do we get to the root of this? What are your questions? What can we unpack? And even something as simple as just shifting how we use that time together made the team more engaged and the time was more valuable. So things like that have really been top of mind in regards to how are we shaping what works like in the pandemic? Because a lot of the stuff I've been seeing or been hearing just feel really prescriptive. If we fast forward, you know, optimistically and unrealistically one month, or let's maybe more realistically 12 months to, to a place where, you know, hopefully we're not all dealing with coronavirus concerns anymore and sort of back to life as maybe not as normal, but at least away from health scares and health concerns. Um, what, what do you think of all the sort of all the different ways the design for the internet has changed? Which are the which are the things that you think we'll we'll keep? For the internet specifically, I'd have to say it's just like continuing to respect users' time and intelligence. So finding those opportunities to remove friction because if nothing else, we've all really learned that time is precious. And the way we operate in this world, you know, should feel more considered. I think there were a lot of mindless behaviors before and for what it's worth now as well, because we're just all trying to (laughs) wait this out, making sure things are thoughtful, necessary, direct, and, or if they move away from that directness, how do they maintain that, that playful nature, or how do you bring, bring enjoyment to the person you're connecting with? I think that's a really good thing to think about with any kind of digital or online content. So similar question. This season for us at the Webbies, we're really focused on this idea of overriding the future, right? And this concept that like we've learned more maybe over the past six to nine months about the ways we did something than we would have normally. And that from those lessons, we have sort of an opportunity to like to overwrite what the future might have been. For you, what is one thing in your industry that you think doesn't work anymore and that you'd like to overwrite? There's a spectrum of answers here. On one end, I think there's the aspect of technology where so many people have relied and continue to rely on email as the primary form of communication. I know I'm going to sound biased because I work at Slack, but realistically, I I cannot fathom going to another company that doesn't use Slack to communicate, to share files, to make those decisions and those approvals. It sounds so painful and I don't know how anyone is doing it. And especially now as they're like trying to wait on other people to respond, to connect, to, to help them feel informed. But on the other hand, like if I was truly being asked, what can I overwrite? I would say I love, I love the aspect of more companies embracing remote work and, and it not being just the people who live in that city get those opportunities. Mm. Slack among other companies has been more thoughtful about hiring lately. And a lot of positions have been opening to remote roles. Before I moved to the Bay Area 10 years ago, I, I lived in the Midwest. I'm originally from Indiana. 
this opportunity would have never been provided to me. I worked in the advertising industry and I'm very thankful for the eight years I put into that, but that was going to be it for me for my creative career until I moved to the Bay Area where all these other cool, interesting, complex opportunities were. So I love that for the industry and for all the other, you know, young and new creatives out there who are thinking about this but weren't really able to or able to consider at this time relocating to a bigger city where these opportunities are available. I'm just really excited to see what that world looks like. Josie Jeffries, thanks very much for joining us on the Webby Podcast. We've loved having you. I really appreciate it. It was an absolute honor and pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Josie. That's it for this episode of the Webby Podcast. If you like what you hear and want to support it, leave us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you really like us, leave us a review. If you are making great stuff on the internet, I hope you won't forget to enter. Our final deadline is coming up Friday, December 18th. For information on that and other information on the Webby Awards, visit webbyawards.com. That's W-E-B-B-Y awards.com. And on most social platforms at The Webby Awards. You can reach me on social at DMD Likes. Our producer is Taylor Griffin. Our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Our editor is Terrence Brosnan. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is your early morning glam squad. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is the Webby Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.